You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Now to God's Word. Um, You know, this fall we're moving through the New Testament book of the Acts of the Apostles, and we are getting uh, first century lessons uh, for our 21st century as we've examined the first century church, really the, the very earliest church, right? We're just at the beginning right now. Uh, we've seen the first coming of the Holy Spirit. We've seen the first sermon. And now today we see, sadly, the first persecution. Our text is Acts 4, verses 1 through 22. Uh, this is narrative, so these texts are longer. Uh, I'm going to ask you to stay seated, given the length of the reading. Uh, if you don't have your a Bible with you, it's printed for you in the bulletin. Acts 4, 1 through 22. This is God's word. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been formed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, well, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is God's word. Let's pray before we dive in. Merciful God, as we increasingly face opposition because of our faith in your Son, our Lord, equip us and encourage us through your word today to persevere in our faith and to boldly and winsomely speak truth to unbelief. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I've often wondered, uh, because I use the word a lot, I use the word gospel a lot, and gospel means good news, and and really it's my my calling to proclaim good news. But if, if I claim to have such good news, if we as believers in Jesus Christ claim to have such good news, then why is our message so widely panned and rejected, ridiculed, minimized, suppressed? Why are we, as the messengers of that news, persecuted? Some around the world, uh, even to the point of death. What kind of reaction is that if this is supposed to be good news? Right? You ever ask yourself that? What's going on? Well, obviously, what's going on is nothing new. Right? The church has just begun. And already it is the target of opposition and persecution. Uh, Today I want to focus with you on the whole issue of unbelief. It's, it's It's an important topic. It's important for us as Christians to understand unbelief because we need to deal with it wisely. We need to deal with it realistically. We need to deal with it uh, compassionately. like Jesus. Uh, And if you're an unbeliever here, uh, I hope you'll hear this because this will, I think, be a challenge to your unbelief. This doesn't say everything about unbelief here, but it says a lot about it. And we're going to look at three truths about unbelief. Unbelief specifically as it relates to the Christian message, the Christian good news. And those three truths are this. Number one, unbelief is not primarily a matter of the intellect. It's not primarily a matter of the intellect. Number two, unbelief makes you small. And then third and finally, unbelief is powerless. It's powerless. I'm going to spend most of my time on the first truth about unbelief not being a matter of the intellect, so don't freak out uh, because I'll I'll deal with points two and three pretty quickly. Uh, All right? Um, So here's the first truth. Unbelief is not primarily a matter of the intellect. You know, people are fond of claiming today, and you may have heard it, maybe you say it, Uh, that smart people can't believe in the gospel in the 21st century. Right? We're in the 21st century. 
You're you're seriously going to ask us to believe uh, that a a man was raised from the dead and that somehow forgives us of our sins? Uh, No. I mean, we're we're smarter than that. We're more sophisticated than that. We, we, We know a lot more than they did in the first century. Well, there are... There are some problems with that claim, okay? First of all, unbelief has nothing to do with your century. It really doesn't. Uh, What you're going to discover here is that people didn't believe in the gospel in the first century for many of the same reasons people don't believe in the gospel in the 21st century. Don't be chronologically arrogant. It's obnoxious to think that just because you live in the 21st century, just because you have a smartphone, that you're somehow smarter than somebody that lived in the first century. Second problem with that claim that you can't believe in the gospel in the 21st century is that a lot of smart people have always believed in the gospel and still do. The gospel, of course, has wide appeal. It appeals to the simplest among us. It appeals to children. It appeals to old people. It appeals to the educated and the uneducated. But it has always appealed to smart people. And and the church has always included smart people and still does. Think of Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. Recognized even by... Uh, secular scholars to be one of the most brilliant minds in the ancient world. Uh, Think about Augustine in North Africa or Martin Luther or John Calvin or Blaise Pascal in France, one of the great mathematicians and scientists. Think about Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest minds America has ever produced. When I was uh, in college... My uh, and I went to a liberal uh, secular university. Uh, my faith came under uh, scrutiny. It was uh, ridiculed. It was challenged both by my fellow students and by some of my professors. And uh, that was a, a, a trying time. It was a good time in many ways. It made me dive deep uh, into what I believed and, and re-examine it. And, and every Sunday I would go to church. I would go off campus to, to a church. And I was encouraged every Sunday because I would sit in that my pew and I would look around and, and sitting in pews right alongside me were many of the professors from my university. Math professors, history professors, uh, engineering professors, physics professors, worshiping, singing, praying, praising God right alongside all of us. These were not stupid or duped men and women. The third problem with the claim that you can't believe in in the gospel in the 21st century is, you know, underlying that claim is that, you know, we're intellectual now with this, you know, and we, we approach the faith uh, intellectually. But the fact of the matter is that, as we'll see, uh, m- many smart people in the 21st century don't 
confront the faith intellectually. Many do. And I, I don't want to claim that there are no uh, you know, intellectual unbelievers. That's not my claim. Uh, but, but the reality is that, that more often than not, when, when, when you see uh, the, the faith being uh, opposed, it's not, it's not as a result of a fair intellectual inquiry into the faith, a fair consideration of the evidence, of going where the evidence takes you. Didn't happen in the first century either. Look at verse 14, right? Uh, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So what did they do? Admit the truth? Fall down and worship? No, what did they do? They suppressed the truth, didn't they? At least tried to. They tried to bury it. it. It is... Often the same today. Uh, read the works. Uh, watch, listen to the podcasts. Watch the YouTube videos of, of prominent intellectual critics of Christianity. You, you will see very often uh, that, 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 that they are not dealing with Christianity at, with the same intellectual commitment as they would to other things. So if unbelief is not driven in the 21st century by intellectual problems with the faith, not primarily driven by it, then what drives unbelief? Well, there are a number of factors, but this this event that we just read shows us three things that, that drove unbelief in the first century that are still driving unbelief today. Uh, that we need to get our, our, our minds around. And those three things are emotion, autonomy, and will, the human will. Okay? So I just want to hit each of those first. These are what's driving unbelief. These are the forces driving unbelief today. Uh, first, emotion. Um, you know, the... Many unbelievers today, critics of Christianity, claim to be uh, the dispassionate ones. You know, we're the, we're the dispassionate ones. We're, we're neutral, we're calm, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not taking sides, we're, we're up, up here just sort of calmly, dispassionately, uh, you know, judging uh, the faith. Uh, but in fact, that's not so true very often. And it certainly wasn't true in the first century, and you see the same thing today. Where do you see the emotion here? Well, look at verse 2. Uh, right out of the gate, it says that, these, uh, that the members of the Sanhedrin were what? Greatly annoyed. That's a, that's a great word. It's a strong word in the Greek. Uh, and greatly annoyed is, is a pretty good translation. They were really annoyed. Uh, and that's not describing an intellectual thing, right? That's describing an emotional reaction. They're greatly annoyed. Why? Because they, Peter and John, were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. See, they were really annoyed that 
Peter and John had invaded their territory. Right? Up up to this point, they had the corner on teaching. They were the teachers in Jerusalem. Not anyone else. And so we have these men coming in uh, purporting to teach the people. They are doing what we do. Right? So they're annoyed. And they're also annoyed that, that they're teaching, that they're teaching of Peter and John was going against the content of their teaching. It contradicted their teaching. Uh, specifically about the resurrection, right? Um, the, uh, a number, as Luke mentions here, a number of the members of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. The Sadducees were anti-supernaturalists. They're sort of odd for, for, for Jews, but they, they didn't believe in anything supernatural, including the resurrection. Thought it was foolishness. Pharisees, also mentioned here, they're the the teachers and the scribes. The Pharisees believed in resurrection, but only as a a future reality that would be a one-time universal event. The idea that that one man would be resurrected by God in the middle of history was was preposterous. It was unthinkable. Um, Much less, um, you know, a man from Nazareth who didn't amount to a hill of beans as far as they were concerned. So, there, the, uh, and of course they were also uh, united in, in their uh, uh, you know, absolute unbelief in the fact that Jesus could be the Messiah. That this resurrection, which they didn't think happened, but somehow stamped him as the Messiah. You know, how could this man be the Messiah? Everybody, you know, Messiahs don't die. Messiahs aren't carpenters from no nobody nobody towns like Nazareth. Uh, and Messiahs don't die a criminal's death on a cross. Um, this was immoral to even begin to teach that. So they are annoyed. Greatly annoyed. Right? But it's not just that they're greatly annoyed. They also are full of contempt. And, and that's another emotion, isn't it? Powerful one. They're full of contempt for Peter and John. Now you say, well, where's the contempt? Um, well, look at verse 7. The Sanhedrin, members of the Sanhedrin asked them, by what power or by what name did you do this? Uh, now, we just read over that, it, and that's a, it's, a, it's a good translation of the words, but you don't pick it up in English. The, the, the sentence in Greek is structured in an unusual way that emphasizes the word you. So, so really, the way it should be read is this. By what power or by what name did you do this? You. You? You, of all people? Who do you think you are to be doing something like this? See, their language just drips contempt. You ever experienced that? It is powerful. It's not fun. Uh, I, I, 
I'm sure I've experienced it more than once, but one, one event stands out in my mind, and it wasn't for my Christian testimony that I experienced contempt. It was for my legal advice. I was a young lawyer at, at sitting in a conference room. We were doing a, selling a business. My client was selling a business to a, a, a businessman across the table uh, who uh, was a self-professed Christian. And I spoke up uh, about the tax uh, ramifications and indicated what they could and couldn't do from a tax point of view. And then the room got real quiet, and he looked at this businessman across the table, looked at me, just staring at me. And he literally said this, who do you think you are to tell me what I can do and not do? I don't think you like me much. (laughs) Contempt. It's strong. It's ugly. It's belittling. Um, Well, that's what Peter and John were getting. And... um, uh, and it still happens today. You see, the, the contempt uh, for the, that the Sanhedrin had was, is further underlined, right, in their perception recorded at verse 13 that Peter and John were educate, uneducated common men. Right? In other words, they, Peter and John were beneath them. Beneath them. Uh, this, is, this is hardly an intellectual problem with Jesus Christ. It's not an intellectual problem with the resurrection. What are we seeing? We're seeing annoyance and contempt for fellow human beings. It's angry jealousy that these uneducated men have invaded their territory, are teaching the people, and, and getting more response from the people than they were. And, and again, I, I just say, listen to the podcasts, read the books. Uh, you, you will hear the contempt of modern critics of Christianity. They just, it, it, it just oozes out of them. It, typically, these, these uh, critics are not dispassionate you know, up here at, a, at, an, at an academic level, they are, they, they can't help themselves. They, they ridicule what, you know, people they regard as fools. Still happens today. So that's the first thing that drives belief, emotion. The second thing that drives belief, unbelief, excuse me, is autonomy. Autonomy, that comes from the Greek. Uh, auto means self Namas means law, it, right? If so if you, if you are an autonomous person, you, you, you have your own law. You are self-governed, uh, right? You, you aren't answerable to other authorities. You are the authority. And if you have any degree of self-awareness, you know that that spirit of autonomy lies deep in your heart. Lies deep in the heart of every one of us. That spirit of autonomy is, is felt as that impulse in you to reject a command that someone gives you. Not because uh, you don't like the content of the command, you just don't want to be commanded. Right? You don't want to be told what to do. I don't want to be told what to do. Even if what they're telling me is good and right. Just because they told me I, I have to do it, I say no. 
Right? That's, that's the spirit of autonomy. Paul talks about this phenomenon in Romans chapter 7 where he, uh, he says, you know, God's law is a good thing. But sin takes advantage of the commandments. And he says, here's an example, commandment, do not covet. He said, sin takes, that, that, takes advantage of that commandment. And what does it do? It produces in me all kinds of coveting. Right? So I read the law, do not covet. What do I want to do? I want to covet everything. And I've talked about that before, how, how, uh, how unholy your, your pastor is. You know, you see the, you know, the, the classic. It's the keep off the grass sign, right? I just want to go, you know, and just wait around for somebody to tell me. You know, get off the grass. It's, that's autonomy. Um, well, the members of the Sanhedrin had been told that they had to do something here. And they didn't like it. And did, you, did you hear it? It's, it's actually in the most famous for, uh, verses in this text, verses 11 and 12. Peter's great response uh, to, to uh, the Sanhedrin where, when he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I had not remembered that verse that way. You know the way my heart read it? There's no other name given among men under heaven by which we may be saved. By which we might be saved. That's not what Peter says by which we must be saved. If you, if uh, just a literal, very wooden, literal translation of the Greek, he says, by which it is necessary that we be saved. See? So Peter is looking at the Sanhedrin and saying, you must be saved by Jesus Christ. And what, what do we see? With the Sanhedrin rising up in an in an autonomous refusal. If you say we must, we won't. Autonomy drives unbelief. Finally, the third thing that drives unbelief is the will, the will, the human will. Right? And the truth is, you know, we believe what we want to believe. And we don't believe what we don't want to believe. Right? It's a, it's a matter of the will. If, if I will to believe it, I will, I will. But if I don't will to believe it, I won't. Um, when, and, and, and because often belief is a matter of the will, uh, facts don't matter that much. Right? Have you been following the story uh, in the news recently? Um, it's been in the news for a long time, but it's, it's come into the news recently because of the big verdict that was just rendered against Alex Jones, the conservative radio commentator, uh, who for years vociferously uh, 
proliferated a conspiracy theory that said that the Sandy Hook elementary school killing was a hoax. That it was all a plot cooked up by some cabal to uh, take away our gun rights. He was, they just rendered, a jury just rendered a verdict of almost a billion dollars against him for those lies. Uh, but what's interesting, I've been reading the stories and of the, of the parents who have been victimized by this false narrative, right? And one a mom was, was saying that she was, they had a photo of, the, of their child that had been killed at Sandy Hook on the mantle. And someone, they had a house guest, or I don't remember if it was a neighbor or what it was, but some, some house guest, who inquired about this, the, this picture of the child on the mantle because they didn't, it, didn't see this child in the family. And, you know, said, who's that? And the mom said, well, that's, you know, that's our child that was killed in, in the Sandy Hook uh, massacre. And this house guest looks at this mom and, and says, no, it's not. That's fake. <laughs> we believe what we want to believe. And even if what we want to believe goes against the overwhelming evidence. The will is a powerful thing. And here the members of the Sanhedrin had the evidence right in front of them, didn't they? The the healed, lame man couldn't deny it, but refused to believe it, refused to accept it, suppress it. They they tried to suppress it, right? Evidence didn't matter. They didn't want to believe, so they're not going to believe. Um, There's a great deal of overwhelming historical evidence for the Christian faith, Um, and it's worth your consideration. But if you don't want to believe it, you won't. Uh, In the end, the evidence doesn't matter so much if you don't want to believe. That's That's still going on today. So, bottom line here, and this is the end of point one. Don't, as I said, don't worry. Unbelief is not a, at the end of the day, primarily a sophisticated, intellectual, dispassionate decision. It is by some, but, but just in general, you know, when you, in what you see in your reading and, and on the YouTube and on the podcast, it's not a sophisticated, intellectual, dispassionate decision. It's really often is not a matter of the intellect at all. At the end of the day, unbelief is the result of deep emotional responses, a deep commitment to personal autonomy, and the power of the human will. Okay? That's the first point. Second truth about unbelief. It makes you small. Peter saw this this phenomenon and alluded to it in verses 8, 9, and 10. It says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, 
By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this, by him, this man is standing before you well. It's, it's, a, it's a great statement, right? What have they done? They're, they were on their way to the temple to worship, this lame man who'd been there for more than 40 years, he, or he, well, he was more than 40 years old, he'd been there presumably for decades, begging outside the temple for alms. They said, silver and gold have we none, but what we have we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. Right? And Peter grasps him and pulls him up and his legs strengthen and he walks and he leaps and he praises God. What happens next? They get arrested. (laughs) Right? Um, Listen, that's why they're standing before the Sanhedrin. And Peter says, really? (laughs) Are we being tried here for a good deed done to a crippled man? This should have been an occasion for joy and celebration, shouldn't it? Should have been a time for worship and thank and gratitude, thanking God that a, that this man whom they all knew, whom they'd passed by almost every day uh, for more than you know, for decades, had been healed and was standing in their midst, praising God Himself. And yet, what are they doing? What are what are the members of the Sanhedrin doing? They are attacking the healers. They're ignoring the healed. They're questioning the healer's methods. They're protecting their own positions. They're worrying about their reputations. This is a pitiful portrait of small men. Whenever you're about yourself, you're making yourself small. You want a big life, then you have to get connected to something bigger than you are. And the biggest reality that you must be connected to is God, and that is only accomplished through faith in his son, Jesus. Now, having just said that, you might respond to me, how intolerant, how exclusive of you, how narrow-minded of you. Well, you can say that, but who was exclusive and intolerant and narrow-minded here? Not the Christians. It's the opponents of Christianity. Their unbelief made them small. Friends, don't be small. Believe. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Finally, third truth about unbelief it's powerless. It's powerless. So they get arrested. Literally, they swoop in. The temple guard swoops in, right? The the temple had its own police force. These aren't the Romans. These are uh, these are uh, Jewish Jewish soldiers uh, uh, whose job was to protect uh, the temple, protect the priests. These this is the same military force that just weeks before had had arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? They swoop in and and arrest them uh, and throw them in jail. 
right? Cool their heels for a night uh, in, in jail. That's in verse three. But Luke, I love what Luke does, right? He, 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 he tells you, oh, they toss him in jail. And then Luke four, but many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. You see what Luke's communicating? I mean, you can toss Peter and John uh, in, uh, you know, in, in solitary, but it doesn't stop the gospel. The gospel that they spoke is still going out and it's still bearing fruit and people are still coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, it started at 120 in the, in the room where the, at, on Pentecost. After Pentecost, the, the spirit coming down on Pentecost, it, um, there were 3,000 converted. And now we're told that the number it has gone up to 5,000 men. Luke's very s- specific here. He's not talking about the total po- population of believers. He's just talking about the men, 5,000 men. He's not counting women and children here. Most scholars think that the church now is probably fifteen to 20,000 strong. It's exploding. And they're in jail. See, un- unbelief can jail believers. Unbelief can threaten, harass, and persecute believers. Uh, unbelief can even kill believers. But unbelief cannot stop the church. Today, on this very Lord's Day, there are more Christians worshiping in churches in China than there are in the United States. China, which has made atheism, you know, it's a a hallmark of who they are as a society. And still the church of Jesus Christ is exploding there. In Iran, Iran, Right, the state religion of Iran is Islam. Uh, the penal code in Iran provides for a five-year sentence if you convert to Christianity. Uh, and do you know where the fastest-growing church in the world is today? Iran. I was at a uh, MTW ambassadors conference the last two days. And uh, I heard yesterday that missiologists say that more Muslims have come to faith in Jesus Christ in the last 15 years than came to faith in the last 1,500 years. Friends, the Spirit's on the move. And unbelief is powerless to stop it. Right? If this is happening in China, if it's happening in Iran... You see, you see the powerlessness. You know, unbelievers have been trumpeting that religion would go away as science ascends. For 150 years at least, uh, you know, intellectuals, unbelieving intellectuals have, have been uh, predicting the uh, end of religion. Uh, as it's overtaken by knowledge and, and science. Um, 1966, there was a, uh, the anthropologist Anthony Wallace uh, 
from Canada, confidently predicted. This 1966, this is over 50 years ago, confidently predicted the global demise of all religion, at the, not just Christianity, all religion, including Christianity, at the hands of advancing science. He said, listen to what he said. Belief in supernatural powers is doomed to die out all over the world as a result of the increasing adequacy and diffusion of scientific knowledge. Miss that one. In fact, it's just the opposite. Religion, especially Christianity, uh, is is growing at, at rates it has it hasn't ever seen. Why hasn't faith in science or faith in humanity or faith in education or faith in the planet? Why hasn't that faith displaced faith in Jesus Christ? I would put it to you because Jesus is real. Because there are millions of people today around the world who will testify to you that they have a living relationship with the living Lord Jesus. He lived, he died, he rose again. And Peter and John saw it. Right? Verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's the basis of our faith, the apostolic testimony, what they saw and heard. There's no other name, no other name under heaven given to men and women by which we must be saved. Okay, that's it. That's the the dynamics of unbelief. Let me just, I hope at this point, a little postscript here. I hope at this point you're concerned. You're concerned about the tragedy of unbelief. You're concerned about the people you know and love who are, um, are trapped in unbelief and what the consequences of that would be. How do you uh, address it? What will overcome unbelief in the people that you know and love and care about? You can't do it. In your own power. I can't do it in my own power. But the Holy Spirit can and will. What's your part? Your part is first to pray, Pray like mad for those people. Second, keep on testifying. Keep on witnessing about the truth of Jesus. You've got to speak it, right? As God gives you opportunities. And never, never count out, count anyone out of God's reach. And never, ever think that it doesn't matter what little you does. Because even though it, 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 it's little me and little you doing it, look, it's, it, the power isn't in us. The power is in the gospel to which we are witnessing. And when you and I witness to the gospel, when we testify about Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes that testimony and uses it to overcome unbelief. So you do make a profound difference. Don't ever think you don't make a difference. You do. And if the difference you make is just one person, isn't it worth it? And finally, your part is to not judge, right? Not condemn. 
Not be like these the members of the Sanhedrin who, who looked down upon Peter and John. Don't look down upon unbelievers as if you are somehow above them, somehow smarter, somehow more moral, somehow better than they are. It's not true. Remember, you and I are only believing here. We are, we are here by the mercy of God. We are believing because we have received faith as a gift from God. Right? Paul says you have it as a gift. The fact that you believe and have faith in Jesus, it's a gift. That means no one can boast. You don't look your nose down on anybody. Friends, may the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, shatter the lingering unbelief in our minds Right? So often I'm like that man with the, with, the, with the boy, with the seizures. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. May the Lord, by his spirit, overcome our lingering unbelief as Christians. And may he shatter the unbelief among the members of your families and your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers. And may he, by your testimony, grow his church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this uh, event in Peter and John's life. Thank you for what we learn here about unbelief. And um, thank you for the mercy that gives us faith. As as I prayed at the beginning, Lord, I, I pray that you would give us uh, wisdom, you'd give us boldness, You'd give us compassion to speak the truth of Jesus to unbelief. Give us those opportunities, Lord, and give us the courage to take them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.